Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Jordan Rubin. And this is your deep dive episode recapping the January sitting. We're going to highlight some of the most notable moments from this month's arguments, including those over the infamous Bridgegate scandal, public funding for religious schools, and the Chief Justice's OK Boomer moment. Uh, But first, we got some interesting grants to round out this term's docket. Jordan, can you tell us uh, about a few of the most notable? I sure can. So the court recently granted a few more cases to fill out its calendar for the rest of the term that'll be argued later in the spring. I'll highlight a couple of them here. One involves the so-called faithless electors and the issue of whether electoral college voters can cast their votes for whoever they want, uh, regardless of what the people in a given state vote for. So we'll See if the Electoral College will, in theory anyway, become even less representative of the popular vote. Uh, 12th Amendment uh, fans, this is uh, your moment, so get ready. And another hot issue the court decided to take on is yet another Obamacare case, specifically... Not that Obamacare case. Not that Obamacare case, or even that Obamacare case, this other Obamacare case, uh, (laughs) this one over here. The contraception uh, mandate. So it is kind of that Obamacare case because it's another one sort of uh, coming back, a similar issue that we've seen before. So specifically, this latest Obamacare case that the court is going to hear argued is the contraception mandate, whether employers can claim broad religious or moral exemptions to avoid effectively paying for the employee's birth control. So we got a couple more cases that are making the term even uh, more explosive than it already is. And those will be argued in the either March or April, right? Yeah. So it's interesting that contraceptive mandate case um, may sound familiar Mm -hmm. to court watchers. That's because the court, of course, heard that issue in Hobby Lobby, but the Trump administration is looking for kind of a broader exemption. So that's what's at, at issue now. So... And then we could see Obamacare come back again. Of course, the whole thing is up for grabs um, in a case that's currently pending before the justices. So. Right. But we all, but we just got on the most recent orders list, right, that the justices don't want to consider that on a expedited basis. So. Right. Right. So there were some blue states in the House of Representatives that really wanted the justices to take that one on, presumably before the election year. Um, but they they decided not to do that. I guess there's still a chance that they could add some time to the May calendar, but not really sure that's going to happen. And all this stuff is pretty important, right? But but we do have something also important, maybe even more more important, important. probably in the just grand scheme of things. Just different, yeah. Um, pizza, Scotus Pizza. Yep. So this was something that Justice Kavanaugh, the junior justice who has to sit on the cafeteria committee. Um, announced at the Federalist Society meeting that was coming soon, SCOTUS Pizza, um, and we finally got it. We did. Um, This was on the day of the Bridgegate argument. Uh, You and I uh, tested out the pizza, and, you know, I'm okay with it. Uh, (laughs) A ringing endorsement. (laughs) Well, it is a ringing endorsement, I think. I mean, it wasn't bad. If it was bad, I would feel comfortable saying it was bad. You... You mentioned that you thought it was like Pizza Hut, and mm-hmm. I agree. I don't think that that's a bad thing. Um, is it? Is that technically maybe not pizza in the way that a lot of people understand it? Maybe, but whatever it was, you know, it's <laughs> it's fine. 
You know, I really like the side Caesar salad that they had. I know that you were really excited about that, too, as someone who doesn't eat vegetables. I did not eat. Oh, I don't eat fruit. Um, there's a whole other podcast. I will there's eat vegetables. There's no fruit in the Caesar well, salad. Well, I know, I know, but I'm I will eat vegetables. Tomatoes, but I maybe. just I just don't like salads. It's just um, just too like time consuming. So so that we can really belabor the pizza point. Mm-hmm. You know, the one thing that I was that I had a problem with was that they make these pizzas one at a time. Yeah. So, so you have lines stretching out the door yeah. into uh, you know into the back into the courtroom, people waiting for pizzas. So it can take a long time at six minutes a pop during rush hour, but otherwise worth it if you're checking out the Supreme Court cafeteria. Yeah. Time for some traffic on the Supreme Court pizza line. Wow. Okay. Um, and so we will actually get to some of the arguments, but but maybe we should also talk about this impeachment thing. It comes uh, in a close second in importance after Supreme Court pizza. Uh, we have Chief Justice Roberts um, pulling a double duty, he was also presiding over President Trump's impeachment trial in the Senate. And so on Tuesday, January 21st, that was the uh, first day of the week of arguments for that week. And it was also the first day of President Trump's trial. And so after the arguments, Chief Justice Roberts, he was driven over to the Senate where he presided over the marathon trial that went right. late into the night. And, you know, he didn't do a whole lot until he was uh, motivated by um, what he seemed to interpret as some uh, rough language that called him called on him to admonish uh, both sides in equal measure. I think it is appropriate at this point for me to admonish uh, both the House managers and the President's counsel in equal terms uh, to remember that they are addressing the world's greatest deliberative body. One reason it has earned that title is because its members avoid speaking in a manner and using language that is not conducive to civil discourse. Um, In the 1905 Swain trial, a senator objected when one of the managers used the word pettifogging. And the presiding officer said the word ought not to have been used. I don't think we need to aspire to that highest standard, but I do think those addressing the Senate should remember where they are. So, yeah, I don't know if he was just tired because he had a, you know, he had the Espinoza argument the following morning and, you know, he had just had enough. He's, you know, ready to turn this car around if people don't. Uh, start behaving, but you know it's the <laughs> it's the manners that really bother him, not you know whether people are being truthful or not. So, Kimberly, you wanted to flag the argument in the Romag against Fossil trademark case. It's not necessarily the blockbuster case of the sitting, but it might have been in terms of the advocates that we had on on both sides. A pretty epic showdown, right? That's right. So arguments on January 14th in Robank Fasteners versus Fossil pitted Supreme Court superstars Lisa Blatt and Neil Cadial against one another. And I think that any appellate attorney who wants to check out a real stellar argument should take a listen to this one. The audio is available on the Supreme Court website now. And the case involves a really technical issue about trademark law, specifically whether you need to show willful infringement to get profits as part of damages. But the advocates were so masterful that 
anyone can really listen to this one and follow along without having to read the briefs and all the amicus briefs. So um, check it out. I will say that Lisa Blatt, uh, who is a University of Texas graduate, has a really unique and pretty casual style with the justices. A great example is when she stood up for her rebuttal. Uh, Katyal had essentially accused her of misrepresenting the case law in her briefs and an argument. Mm -hmm. Um, And here she is in response. Thank you, counsel. Uh, Ms. Blatt, five minutes. You may want to cut me off. Um, So I, I don't know what to say. I didn't go to a fancy law school, but I'm very confident in my representation of the case law. Uh, Mishawaka is a case by you guys, and you said in there, in the dissent, it was an innocent uh, infringer. The profits were awarded. The district court case says, hey, I don't like the assertion that innocent people shouldn't get profits, but you guys can read the case and decide whether our assertion is credible. But that is a district court case, and it's a Supreme Court case by the dissent that acknowledges uh, innocence. Uh, Oaks, it is what it is. You can read it, and Presto Light is the same. So I just think it's really interesting the way she engages with the justices and calls them, you know, you guys. Hey, yeah. hey you guys. Yeah. You guys did this. Um, it's the only thing you can pull off after you've had, you know, a million or so arguments under your belt. N- not quite a million. Yeah. I think it's like 900,000. Yeah. Right. She's, she's getting there. Um, but to all you University of Texas law school grads, um, you don't have to worry. Justice Ginsburg, even though Lisa Blatt says that you don't go to a fancy school, Justice Ginsburg, she has your back. Thank you. Ms. Blatt, oh, thank Texas you. is a fine law school. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and so another case that has a little bit of uh, accusations between the parties going on, uh, this Bab against Wilkie, this will, maybe it'll be come to be known as the OK Boomer case. Uh, hopefully not, but we'll see. Um, and, and this one, you know, Roberts supposedly is trying to lay low given that he has the whole uh, impeachment thing going on. But, you know, he does know how to grab a, a headline if he wants to. And he was successful in doing that in this case where he had a question about employment discrimination. Say in the course of the, you know, weeks-long process, you know, one comment about age, you know, the hiring person who's younger says, you know, okay, boomer, uh, you know, once, uh, once to the, to the applicant. Now- so this was another case where we had some heated rebuttal. Um, uh, Latham's Roman Martinez really called out the Solicitor General in his rebuttal. He um, said that the Solicitor General had really misrepresented um, the heart of the case wow. and also um, said that he was misrepresenting what remedies were available to people if they couldn't uh, pursue age discrimination under this particular statute. Here he is in, in rebuttal. Finally, Your Honor, younger is better. I think it's striking that the Solicitor General doubled down on his position that a younger is better stat, uh, policy does not violate this statute. His deus ex machina here is Section 2301 of the CSRA. That's a cruel joke that will be played on, on this Court if you accept that rationale. Section 2301 is unenforceable. Unenforceable. I think the Solicitor General said, Justice Kavanaugh, in response to your question, that it would give rise to a remedy of an injunction in court. That is not accurate. If you look at the MSPB website, it specifically says that, that this provision is not enforceable, and that's the rule that courts across the country have applied. The Solicitor General has had months to come up with a solution to this hypothetical, and the best the Solicitor General can do is come up with a statutory provision that's unenforceable. That puts... 
So subsequently, the Supreme Court asked the parties to submit some supplemental briefing on this question. Uh, so we'll see how that comes out if the Solicitor General responds to, um, you know, the accusation that he's playing a cruel joke on everyone. Wow. They're thrown down this session. They I like really it. are. They really are. And before we bring on our guests to talk about the Bridgegate case, we'll highlight what's maybe the, so some people, the most closely watched argument of this sitting in Espinoza against Montana Department of Revenue. Kimberly, you were at that argument. Can you tee up that issue for us and tell us how it went? Sure. So Espinosa is really the latest in a line of cases that really highlight this kind of tension between the First Amendment's free exercise clause and the establishment clause, especially as the latter has been applied through state constitutions. So here, Montana and about 20 or so other states have um, what they call no-aid clauses, which kind of sound in establishment clause. Um, These are in their state constitutions, which prohibit public funds from going to religious schools. So many of these no-aid clauses were born out of hostility towards uh, Catholicism in the 1800s. But many states, um, like Montana, have readopted and tried to strip that animus um, out of these no-aid provisions. Uh, so Montana readopted the provision in the 1970s, and it noted, you know, kind of the nefarious background, but said that it still wanted to have the clause in there to prevent, really to protect uh, religious schools from kind of coercion from the government. So with all of that in the background, uh, Montana adopted a tax incentive program for individuals to donate to privately run scholarship funds. And the original legislation didn't make a distinction between private religious schools and secular religious schools. But a Montana state court said that allowing funding to go to religious schools would violate the state's no-aid provision. So it had the choice of either leveling up and saying, you have to provide it to secular schools and religious schools or leveling down and saying you can't provide these incentives for any types of schools. And it leveled down. Um, So now the program isn't available to anyone. Now, some parents who wanted or who have received funding to send their kids to religious schools are challenging that decision. And they rely heavily on the Supreme Court's recent decision in Trinity Lutheran, which was actually seven to two, which said that regardless of these state no aid provisions, you can't or it violates the federal free exercise clause to exclude religious institutions from really generally applicable programs simply because they are religious. So this case, after oral arguments, doesn't look like it's going to be a 7-2 case. It seems like it's going to be uh, a little more divided than that. In particular, there was a lot of skepticism by Justices Kagan and Breyer, uh, who had both joined the majority in Trinity Lutheran, about what the discrimination here is now that nobody gets the funding. Uh, you know, all religious schools and secular schools are all being treated the same. And Justice Breyer, in particular, wondered about the implications of requiring Montana to fund religious private schools and what that could later be spun out to with regard to public school funding. Um, So once again, it looks like the chief justice is going to be the deciding voice here. And it wasn't really clear which way he would fall. He's been very protective of religious institutions in other cases and had some things to say that seemed like he might go that way. But he also had some really hard questions about standing here, um, which can get really complex in tax cases like this. So, uh, you know, one to watch. Yeah, for sure. So 
Finally, we've gotten to the Bridgegate case, Kelly against the United States, and this is one that we already previewed on our sneak peek episode, but we'll tee it up a little bit more before we uh, bring on our special guest. And of course, this is the appeal stemming from the infamous 2013 traffic jam plotted by aides and associates of then New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. The case in front of the court deals with the convictions of then Christie aide Bridget Ann Kelly and Port Authority Executive Bill Baroni. They challenged their convictions for fraudulently obtaining property by lying in order to carry out their plot to divert government resources to change traffic patterns at the George Washington Bridge, the world's busiest bridge, as political payback to a local mayor who declined to endorse Christie's re-election. And essentially, Kelly and Baroni are arguing that the government overreached, that um, Whatever they did was not a good thing, of course, but that it wasn't a federal crime. And the defendants are hoping to take advantage of recent Supreme Court rulings like the 2016 ruling in favor of then-Virginia Governor McDonnell, which upended his corruption convictions. And that was one of the latest in a whole string of cases that showed the Supreme Court is basically skeptical of government efforts to prosecute corruption when it seems like they're trying to really stretch out these criminal statutes in order to fit really just generally bad behavior. And to discuss the Bridgegate case, we're going to bring on our guest. Randall Eliason teaches white-collar criminal law at George Washington Law School here in D.C., and he writes this sidebars blog that tackles criminal law issues. Before that, he was a federal prosecutor where he specialized in white-collar crime in the public corruption and government fraud section. Professor Eliason, thanks so much for joining us on Cases and Controversies. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So you wrote ahead of the Bridgegate argument that the Supreme Court has repeatedly pushed back against federal prosecutors seeking to use expansive legal theories to prosecute political misdeeds. And in Kelly against the United States, the Bridgegate appeal, you said that the court appears poised to do so once again. And now that's what you said ahead of the argument. After the argument, do you feel the same way? Yes, I definitely do. I mean, I was act- I was in the courtroom uh, to watch the arguments, and you didn't feel a lot of love coming from the bench for the for the government's prosecution. I don't think. Um, I think they're pretty, they're very likely to to re- reverse the convictions and uh, and hold that the government's fraud theory here doesn't stand up. Right, but I mean, we had some questions going the going the other way against the defense position, right? You had uh, Justice Ginsburg earlier in the argument. You said that if the resources were diverted to private use, then the prosecution would be okay. But why isn't it a private use to benefit defendants politically? Uh, What did you make of a question like that? Yeah, I think the, the that particular question is sort of trying to get at the distinction between uh, as you said, private and public use, and the distinction that the defendants are drawing is, you know, it's one thing if I order the city snowplows, for example, to go plow my private driveway, something the city doesn't normally do, uh, then that's actually, that's clearly converting the public resources to a, a private use to just benefit myself, and that could be a crime. But if I'm just changing the priority of sort of where they go first as uh, uh, as to streets that they normally plow anyway, so I direct them to my political supporters' neighborhood first, for example, that's not going to be a crime because they're still doing 
the public use, the or the, it's still a public use, and they're doing the types of things that they're hired to do and that they normally do anyway. And the defense is saying that's the case here. Uh, the employees, if the theory is that they sort of converted the labor of the employees or their wages, uh, these employees were still working at the bridge. They were doing the types of things they were hired to do. They were taking the tolls. They were moving the cones. They were studying the traffic. Uh, so they were still doing their public duties. And uh, the allegation, the, the, the only... Uh, thing that the government think, claims makes it a fraud is that they were doing it for an improper political reason. And the defendant's argument that I think the court's going to find persuasive is you can't make a fraud turn on whether or not the public official had some improper political motive for taking actions that were otherwise, you know, within the scope of their public duties. Uh, because if you do, then you open up the floodgates back again to honest services fraud uh, that the court struck down in skilling. Right. And so, I mean, is it are we just in a situation where when you have this sort of what everyone or most people anyway would seem to see it as bad behavior, there's just no criminal remedy for that? Yeah. And I think that's a key point that, uh, that the defendants tried to emphasize and, and that I emphasize uh, myself is that nobody's saying this was OK. Right. But what I will say is I'm not trying to suggest that this is OK. I mean, you know, there's clearly bad, you know, deplorable behavior, political misconduct. Mm -hmm. There should be some kind of consequences. The only issue here is is the is the proper remedy of federal criminal fraud, um, and I think the court's going to say no. Uh, now there should be there could be consequences such as uh, you know political consequences for Christie, which clearly happened. Uh, these two people lost their jobs, uh, you know, which seems appropriate. And there could be other civil remedies if somebody was you know harmed by the traffic jam. They could maybe sue them. And there's even a possible New Jersey state statutes that, you know, if those apply, that might be appropriate. But trying to stretch the federal criminal fraud statutes to say these defendants actually defrauded the government of property through this kind of misconduct, I think that's really a reach. Um, and I think the court's likely to strike it down. And I've been, you know, personally critical of a, a, a lot of the court's prior decisions in public corruption that narrow the statutes, uh, decisions like McDonnell. Um mm -hmm. You know, and in general, I think there's there's an unfortunate trend in public corruption Supreme Court cases to to really dramatically narrow these statutes. But in this case, I actually think the defendants are right. I don't think this is a criminal fraud. So, so can I ask then? I mean, it seems like a lot of people who agree with the defendants here also agree with the McDonald type of reasoning. So, what's the distinction that you draw there? Well, McDonald, of course, is, a, is strictly a statutory case interpreting the federal bribery statute um, as opposed to sort of the general definition of fraud. I think the, the problem with McDonnell is the, the really narrow interpretation of what's an official act led to some real artificial or unfortunate results because now after, after McDonald, basically politicians are free to sell access. I can charge you $10,000 to set up a meeting with my cabinet official or my chief of staff, um, that's not bribery under McDonnell because setting up a meeting uh, is not an official act. Um, I just think that was a really strained and you know, unnecessarily limiting reading of that statute. But um, you know, that's a different question from the sort of common law notion of fraud and what's property under under the fraud statutes. Sure. And, and I mean, and still going back to the, the Bridgegate argument itself, I mean, you have Justice Sotomayor, obviously, who's usually 
the most, one of the most inclined, if not the most inclined, to side with the criminal defendant. I don't think uh, uh, I, I can see a headline that would say it's okay for officials to use government public money in a way that is plainly unauthorized, um, not just in its motives, but it's in end use. And an official can and should not be, should never be liable for that. Our public officials now can use government resources for their private ends. Right. What do you make of that? Yeah, I think we have to come back again to the to say, to the response that no one's saying it's okay. <laughs> There's a lot of conduct right. that goes on that's sleazy, deplorable, unethical, immoral, and not criminal. And so saying that it's not a federal fraud is not the same as saying it's okay. It's just saying this is not the appropriate remedy. And there could be other sanctions and other remedies, but we, sh- we shouldn't try to stretch the federal criminal fraud laws to police political misconduct, which is what I think this primarily was. Uh, political mischief, political misbehavior, using, you know, these, uh, taking these public official acts still for a public purpose, but for an improper reason. Um, that, sh- that should not be a criminal fraud. And, you know, again, that doesn't mean it's okay. It just means we need to have some different remedies for it. I just want to ask one last question from the argument, actually, about a justice who didn't ask any questions, and that was Justice Gorsuch. And now, from what we seem to know about him, this does seem like the type of case where he would probably be likely to side with the defense, right? And so, what do you draw from his silence at the argument, if anything? Is is this just such an easy case for him that he doesn't even (laughs) need to waste his time weighing in? Because it's not like he's necessarily usually quiet anyway. No, I don't, I don't know. I noticed that too, and I was a little surprised. I thought this would be a case that would really interest him. Um, he approaches a lot of these issues you know, in a way very similar to how Justice Scalia used to approach them, uh, and you know, in their interpretation of these federal criminal statutes, and I, I expected him to, to be pretty interested in this case. So uh, I don't know what the explanation is for him not asking any questions, but I do expect that he's going to side with the defendants, as I think Almost all, if not all, of the justices will. This could easily be another nine, nine nothing opinion. I think. Um, right, as it was in McDonald's. Yes. Yep. Justice Breyer, of course. You know, if we talk about honest services fraud, he was pretty interesting during the argument. He was the most vocal in his concern that you know, if the court accepts this theory, then we're just basically it's an end run around the Skilling case and the McNally case. And I think that that's correct. I think that's the defendant's strongest argument that. If we say any time there's political misconduct uh, or uh, public official acts for some improper motivation and lies about it, and then we and then under the government's theory we can say well and we we're still paying them their salary, so even if it's just their own salary that's a deprivation of property because the government paid them their salary. Then any misconduct at all where the official lies about why they did it is now subject to a federal fraud prosecution, and that again, sort of doesn't end around on all the restrictions that the court imposed on honest services fraud in skilling. The example that I like from the briefs, and they and actually opened up their, uh, their, uh, their brief with this, the defendants, is the, the uh, citizenship question on the census. Right. Right. 
Yeah, that was a pretty. Uh, the briefing was was pretty bold. Pro- I mean, probably especially from uh, Kelly's side, if not as much from from Baroni. It was a, it was an interesting and enter- entertaining brief, yeah. somewhat as far as these things go. Yeah, and I think it's a great argument. The point that I mean, the Supreme Court said the Commerce Secretary's uh, rationale for putting the citizenship citizenship question on the ballot on the uh, on the census seemed contrived, and so their point is. Okay, well, if the Commerce Secretary lied about his real reason for that question, and undoubtedly there were Commerce employees who spent a lot of time working on that, uh, the citizenship question, well, so now their salaries, we can say the Commerce Secretary converted those salaries uh, to his own use and lied about the reason. Under the government's theory in this case, he could be prosecuted, and I don't think anybody wants to go there. (laughs) Right. Well, some people might. Well, maybe some, but... (laughs) uh, Probably not, maybe not a majority of the Supreme Court, we'll see. And again, we have, I, okay. I just think we have to distinguish between, you know, criminal remedies and other appropriate remedies. And I think that's a line the court's going to draw once again. Sure. One last broader question I want to get your take on before we, we let you go, unless you had uh, anything else uh, to add is, you know, and you, and you probably hear this a lot and, and maybe you take this view as well, that just there's just so many criminal laws on the books, right? It's just, um, you know, more than can, can even be counted. It's this sort of quantitative argument, right? Yep. There's just there's just too much criminal law, right? Yep. And so you start from that premise, which is, you know, uh, a reasonable enough one on its own. But then you look at a case like this and you, and you look at what's available to the government to prosecute this case and you say, this is really sort of, you know, the best that you have, you know, someone might say, you know, there maybe there are too many criminal laws, but maybe there just aren't enough that actually fit the right conduct. Or does that just go towards your broader point of this just isn't a crime and shouldn't be? Yeah, I think I'd agree with your with your final statement. Uh, In other words, the fact that the the vast array of criminal laws they already have, and they had to stretch so hard to try to make one fit this conduct, um, to me just suggests that this really shouldn't be criminal. I mean, that it really was a reach, um, and the federal prosecutors have just tried to stretch these statutes beyond uh, beyond where they're supposed to reach to, to criminalize conduct that, again, deplorable, bad, <laughs> you know, deserves to be punished, deserves to be sanctioned, but that doesn't mean it's a federal criminal fraud. Um, and I think the fact that they had to try so hard to try to make it fit into that uh, just kind of supports that supports that argument right well uh thanks for uh giving you giving us uh that view and for uh, taking some time with us on cases and controversies we appreciate it. my pleasure thanks for having me all right another solid cases and controversies guest i guess uh you just can't punish this political activity right yeah i thought that was really interesting that he brought up the um census yeah litigation because of course um there was really no traction from the justices on that point. They didn't want to get back into it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that was a that was a fun brief. And so, you know, it seems like the defendants are probably going to win this case, right? It's unlikely the justices granted cert just to, you know, say that their, their prosecution was okay. I think what's more interesting is going to be just after the argument, you know, what exact theory the court comes down on and whether there's any separate concurrence or even maybe a dissent that, you know, the question is whether it's going to be unanimous like it was in that McDonald case. So we'll just have to see. Yeah. 
Good stuff. Well, that's going to do it for this deep dive episode. Stay tuned for our next deep dive episode, which will look ahead to the February sitting. Until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Thanks for listening. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Hey there, I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor for Bloomberg Government. And I'm Greg Giroux, senior elections reporter for Bloomberg Government. Check out our podcast, Down Ballot Counts. Those aren't the only down ballot races we're watching, are they? In states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. Will Democrats be able to defend their majority in the House this year? Will Republicans keep their majority in the Senate? Are there other members who wish to record their presence? Each week, Greg and I will be breaking down all of those down-ballot elections that make up the fight for the U.S. Congress. 26, and that is the number of women who will be serving the United States Senate when it swears in Georgia Republican Kelly Leffler. Along the way, we'll cover all of the numbers that matter. So a really interesting thing is how much national security background and experience so many of them are bringing to this job and interview key players in the congressional elections. Listen and subscribe to Down Ballot Counts from Bloomberg Government wherever you get your podcasts.